Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. All right, welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If this is your first time here, we appreciate you listening in. The mission of this podcast is to help us find those daily practices that allow us to align with our purpose, motivate us to be our best selves, make maximum impact and achieve our goals. We discover and share those mindsets, the motivations, the habits of executive leaders in military, government and technology. What's more DC than that? Please remember to follow us wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast, along with on Instagram and soon to be on our website. It'll be live shortly. We're excited to have Tim McKay, UX designer on board as our lead designer. He's putting the finishing touches on there right now. And, you know, as you know, we're big proponents of getting ready along the way. Start before you're ready. It's more important to get started than it is to be perfect and have everything in place. So it's taken us a while, but we're here now and we're excited to have that there. We'll have our reading list, all the books that we talk about, book reviews, our mailing list, all the daily updates, uh, Mindset Mondays, motivations, everything that we have that we talk about, we're going to aggregate into our newsletter. So make sure that you sign up for that. Today's episode is with Alec Harris, Managing Director of Halo Privacy, who specializes in secure communications. Every time I speak to the intelligence community, I always feel so educated and a little bit freaked out. You know, Alec is just a spiritual guy, and he shares some of those practices with us today about how he takes care of his mindset. He shares about his family, some of the practices he has with his coworkers and his friends, and just things he's learned along the way. We'll be at the Sea Air Space Conference in a couple weeks, so look forward to sharing some of those great chats from some military leaders and defense contractors that we run into around that conference. And we're going to be continuing to partner with NVTC, that's Northern Virginia Technology Council, to host Let's Talk Tech with NVTC. You can sign up for those events at nvtc.org. And our friends over at Notecast have some big news coming up. They've got a brand new software and a brand new platform that they've been working on. As I mentioned before, Notecast is a veteran-owned company founded by former Special Forces members. And we're going to be excited to share some of that news once it's all ready. So really appreciate everyone being here. And let's get into the episode. All right. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. We're here today with Alec Harris. Alec is the managing director of Halo Privacy and someone that I've gotten to know pretty well over the last couple of years. And I'm really excited to have you here. How's it going, Alec? Phil, it's great. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm honored that, that you reached out to, to join you here. So thank you. I mean, you've always had some pretty impactful things to say to me every time that we've talked, whether it you know, was something professional or just something personal. And, and I really appreciate you being here. And I'm hoping that whoever listens to this can find some sort of mentorship from what you're saying. That's why we're doing this. We're going around t- talking to our DC local leadership and, and getting their story of how they got from where they were to where they are now. And those small impactful moments and you know any mentors you've had in your life. And I'm just excited to get into it. And I know it's gonna be a great episode. Yeah, me too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so 
let's talk about Halo. What uh, what is Halo Privacy? Give us some idea of what that is and what you guys do. Yeah, sure. So uh, Halo is at its core, a secure communications company, but we approach secure communications from a couple different directions. And, and, and I won't get too in the weeds on this, but we employ strong cryptography. That's fairly ubiquitous in the marketplace. Everyone from WhatsApp to Signal to Wicker is using strong cryptography. We do something called managed attribution, which is where the participants in the network are obfuscated or managed for their profile online. And then the third thing that we do is around routing, which is just basically how your calls interact with their counterparties and, and the backend infrastructure. And the reason for that is just to make sure that we're not establishing inappropriate connections. And, and the example I would give is if you call your oncologist twice a week for a month, I don't need to break into that call to kind of know what's going on. That's just an example where the attribution of the parties and the link between them is enough information to be revealing. And so that's how we approach secure communications, is by hedging against all three of those. And then we have some other disciplines that are, one is called open source intelligence, otherwise referred to as OSINT. And another is identity management, which is where you're kind of helping people with reputation and information, online narratives and such. So who are your typical clients? Do people hire you individuals or some. companies or government yeah. or who, who do you guys market to? Yeah, all three. So we actually don't do a lot of marketing and it's it's a double-edged sword, right? We are a privacy company and so our oh. clients kind of expect us to... You keep to, it private. Yeah, we're not going to be the one on the billboard or at the Super Bowl ad. But by the same token, you know, we're, as a small business, it's important to, to be known, at least in your target demographics. So a government is... The U.S. government is a good portion of our business. And then usually small to medium-sized enterprises, we would be able to assist kind of fully where we would work with that whole organization. We work with some Fortune 500 or otherwise very large companies, but in those cases, we are a small kind of provider that we're working with a, you know, the M&A group or someone that's dealing with a lot of intellectual property or financial data, health data, et cetera, where you'd want to ramp up your security. And then the third case is individuals or families or small entities that are targeted socially, economically, compromised, politically, etc., have some kind of privacy concerns or requirements. And there we're, we're being, it's more of a scalpel type of job where we really go in and kind of help and get down into the weeds with an individual, a phone, a laptop, a family, an address, mm -hmm. all these things. So would it sounds like simply just changing the phone number wouldn't. It wouldn't. Wouldn't, wouldn't work. Yeah. That's not a good It helps. <laughs> it helps. Okay. But again, you know, not to get into the weeds for your kind listeners, but there are a whole host of things that we would refer to as elements that attribute back to a pattern of life. So you have a pattern of life. I have a pattern of life. And it is basically a fingerprint equivalent because... No one goes the places that you go at the times that you go and stays for the, for the amount of times that you are there with the same devices that you have and the same payment mechanisms you have, etc. For example, you wake up in the morning at your home address with your phone and your laptop. You go with your phone to the gym. You're there for 45 minutes. You go get a coffee at Starbucks and then you go home, shower, and you're at the office. No one was with you on that exact route with that exact device. So if I know where your device is or I know where your car is, or I know what cell phone towers you're pinging, I can start figuring out exactly what your pattern of life is. I can associate that back to an address, look up that address, and see who owns that house or who rents that apartment. And then it's like, hey, I know exactly who Phil is, I know where he's going to go, and I know where he's going to be tomorrow at 9 a.m. Probably not a problem, but 
if you're compromised or you're at risk for some reason, that becomes a very big problem. Or mm. you're Brad Pitt. And you just don't want to go to the gym every day and have... But how accessible is that information to folks, right? Like, who's who's looking at it? Who's able to look at it? Because I wouldn't even know where to go look that up. So, and in our case, we're actually acting defensively. So the federal government, other governments, and commercial entities, marketing companies, social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of they have access to that data at a variety of levels. Mm. Governments have data that's different from private industry. But you and I can go start a company tomorrow and go buy some of this marketing data that will give us location information. It'll give us payment history information. It'll give us health profile. And it's all based on this sort of passive collection of metadata and data out there against us. Most people aren't aware of it, but as soon as you are aware of it, you just start finding out how much more there is. And yeah. it is most of it, I would say most of it is actually collected through what we refer to earlier as open source intelligence, stuff that you and I could go get with commercially available tools. A little bit of it is stuff that the NSA goes and gets. And that's bad too. But if the NSA is your problem, then we're, we're probably not gonna be able to help you. <laughs> right, so yeah, you've done something. Like, yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen by accident, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so I, you know, one thing I, I always pay attention to everything that you post on LinkedIn, right? I follow all that and it's been informative for all of our listeners. You can follow Halo Privacy on LinkedIn, you can find Alec Harris. You guys put out some valuable information because it just got my brain moving. Like I knew that there's this idea that like the apps are listening to us. And I've learned later that maybe it's more of an algorithm that, you know, it's like if I look up or I say the word like Lululemon, for example, and then I wind up with a bunch of Lululemon ads. We can pick up on that. But then I started reading some of your articles and I was like, oh, wow, like, you know, there's companies out there that actually are working to do something about that. And you guys are one of them. How, how long has Halo Privacy been in business? How did you guys start? Where'd you start? Is it is it local? I know that you guys, you guys have an office here locally, but tell me about that. Yeah, sure. So the company was incorporated in 2015. I actually met the gentleman who's the CTO in 2011, and he was working on cryptography at the time, and I was working in a place where we used some of his cryptography. And so there was actually some genesis to what we have now even going back into the mid-2000s, but incorporated in 2015, and really the form of what we do now and its maturation has really been since 2015. Uh, a bunch of us are here locally, and then, you know, as with many workforces, we're distributed to. Uh, and then there's some engineers out on the West Coast in Washington State that, that do some integration there, too. So relatively young company. For sure. But for you as an individual and as a leader in that company, that idea of working for a relatively young company or a small company or startup is not new for you. You've actually, you've kind of only ever worked for startups, right? Correct. So I started a company, I'm sure all your listeners have heard of when I was 22 called Profound Productions that was a, excuse me an events planning company in Boston that was really just me thinking I was good at throwing parties in college, therefore this must be a viable business. Uh, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. We turns out it wasn't a viable business. No? No, it was It was a... So it was an... There was some entrepreneurship to my intent and motivations, but there was really no follow-through. Were you in, you were in school in Boston? Yeah, I went to Boston College and just, you know, like every other 22, I was like, parties are the be-all and end-all. And so therefore, right. if there's a business out of that, what... What Why could not? be more appropriate? Where'd that come from, though? That idea? Were you were you a business major and that you were learning these things, or did you always have an idea that you know I'm going to college, but I want to 
I want to own a business or did you, did it, was it accident? Someone mentioned how that? No. Happen? So I think I was interested in entrepreneurship, but I was an English and communications major and you know, <laughs> for what those are worth, but I worked, so I had three jobs when I was in college, three concurrent jobs by the time I was a senior. And one of them was working at a bar in Boston. And I was a, if you could have seen me at the time, it was even more laughable than now, but I was a bouncer. And so <laughs> checking IDs and, and I was a bouncer in the year that Boston, uh, enforced its smoking ban. So, mm -hmm. and you remember, right, that so there was yeah. a whole generation, of many generations of people for which smoking in bars yeah. is legal. Right. So, but the, the day it was implemented, not everyone who's in a bar at one o'clock in the morning remembered that it was implemented. Right. So we were very much hated because our job was to go pull cigarettes out of people's mouths. Mm. And the later it got on at night, the more right. hated we were. A drunk guy, you, you're taking a cigarette, that's Horrible. gonna go great. Horrible, It was actually a difficult job. But one of the things I would do on the side is throw events there and they were usually well attended and I usually thought they were fun and apparently others thought they were fun. And so that's where the idea came from. A friend and I were like, let's, put a logo on this and get a website and incorporate something. And it was a good exercise in business because we had to incorporate, get a commercial bank account and do some actual branding and try to come up with a business plan. And uh, so there was some process in it that was educational, but you know, it, it was not acquired by Facebook. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so, but it sounds like you learned a lot from doing that. Where'd that lead you? What'd you do next? Yeah. So I started working in commercial real estate, Yeah, started working for a developer. I was the employee at that company. So there were people that worked on the job sites uh, who actually had skills building, but I was the first kind of corporate employee. And it was a great experience. And the one of the best bosses I've ever had was the guy that ran that company. And really? his name is Ed Champy. And the reason he was a great boss, there were many, but the reason that really stuck with me is because he was consistently an ethical operator. And as you know, and real estate development hasn't like always had the best reputation. He was consummate in living up to his obligations. He took care of people who bought property from him. He always lived up to all of his warranties, guarantees, bank notes, investor notes, everything took care of his employees. And it wasn't always easy. It's not like he was rolling in money because it was a small startup. But I just saw someone who was consistently ethical. And I thought to myself, that's something I admire. Yeah. Sounds like that was pretty impactful. Oh, for sure. How old were you at this time? So got the job at 22. I was there for a couple of years and then went into commercial mortgage brokerage. Yeah. So stayed in the industry, but kind of different side of it. I've heard from a few different leaders, a lot of them out there that, well, have either made the jump from going from technical to being in a leadership role or being in a leadership role of a technical company, not starting as a technical person. But, you know, I guess the real question is the sales background. Do you think that that's valuable and that that kind of got you where you are? Yeah. So this will come as no surprise to you because I think we're 100 percent aligned on this concept, but it's not sales, right? It's service. So oh. it, there, to me, it, if you go in trying to sell someone something, it is going to be a difficult process and you're not going to earn or build uh, a relationship there because it's like I have a widget and it is the only widget that you need. And, you know, it doesn't matter how catchy or clever your approach is. Ultimately, you're not building a relationship there. However, if you go in and try to understand someone's problem or what is ailing them or what is troubling their organization and see if maybe you can be of service. And if in being of service, your product can be part of that, great. Then sell the product. But if you can't, maybe you can point them to another company. Maybe you can find another resource. A lot of times I just tell people, you know, at the end of a kind of introductory call, 
I'm happy to be a friend in a relationship no matter what. If I can help you, great, please let me know. Sometimes that leads to an informal non-business relationship and that's great too. All of these outcomes are fine to include a no. You know, I have a colleague who says no is the second best answer. The only bad answer is I'm not sure and let's talk about it for the next three months and go nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and you've yeah. been there, right? I've been there plenty <laughs> yeah. of times. So no is fine. But if it's a no, I still like want to keep that person in my personal network. It's not sales, it's service. That's uh, that's awesome. You did something with Bitcoin, didn't you? So, well, Bitcoin is kind of, we could take a multi-hour uh, detour here. But yeah. So Bitcoin is a personal interest, but it also overlaps nicely with what I do professionally. Just because Bitcoin is inherently more private, more extensible, and more secure than other forms of payment to include other advantages. And so we use it in the work environment, but I also think that there's some underlying principles there that are interesting and innovative and applicable. And so I spend a lot of time kind of thinking and learning and listening and reading about Bitcoin, but it also overlaps professionally. Uh, and so there, there's a variety of things I've done in the Bitcoin space that are almost all informal, but it comes from me actually believing in the future of Bitcoin. And therefore, I believe if I can contribute in a small way, and a very small way is, for instance, writing a few articles that maybe a few people read that help me to think through my thoughts on Bitcoin. And if it's useful to someone else, even better. But I have found, and I think part of the reason you and I are sitting in this room is because, you know, I put out a few articles and we already knew each other. And that kind of cultivated your curiosity, maybe. And here we are having this conversation. And so, yeah, when I was sitting there writing those articles, I wasn't thinking, gosh, I hope Phil reads this and right. he invites me on his podcast. But I was, what I was thinking is if I throw something out that is, you know, moderately thoughtful and a contribution to the conversation, then I am not in charge of what the results of that are, but I will put an effort in. You've only ever worked for smaller startup companies and you've been successful doing it. You know, looking back at that, what do you think are some of the biggest things that you've learned from having to be in that small environment. Yeah, and so one of the lessons to me, one of the things I like about small businesses, but maybe it's not for everyone, is if you work in a small business, you will do things way above your pay grade all the time. And you'll be put in meetings that you shouldn't be in and you know, write proposals that would be above your kind of experience level. And that's amazing. And that's where the growth comes from. You will also be in charge of booking flights and taking out the trash yeah. and you know, setting up websites and just stuff that isn't really in my wheelhouse and it would usually be handled administratively by other people in a bigger organization and there is some humility to that sort of we're all kind of here working on stuff we get to do some cool stuff some days we just kind of trudge along with some other stuff but we're doing it together that to me is valuable yeah. uh, and it has allowed me to learn where i contribute more and where i contribute less because if you get to do a little of everything you will by definition excel at some of it and maybe less so at others you know, I, I really want to get into to you and some daily habits and mm. really kind of understand, because I guess, would you say it's high pressure working in a small business in, in something like Halo Privacy? So so it, it is theoretically high pressure. I don't experience it. Or I rarely experience it as high pressure. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the organization is very supportive and it's it's small, right? And we all know each other very well, but it is not a whose fault was this type of organization. It's a how do we collectively move forward better type of organization. And so at least I know the people I work with have my back and I have their backs and we will definitely make some mistakes and we're trying to make fewer mistakes as we grow and we have. But that alleviates kind of some of the structural stress you may experience from having a you know, really overbearing CEO or anything like that. So we don't have that, gratefully. And then the other thing is I think as a result of some of these things like my routine and kind of outlook on life, I 
I experience and handle stress very well, I would say, yeah. if I can say that about myself. What's your mornings look like typically? Yeah, so I have more of a daily routine than a morning routine. In the mornings, we will sleep as late as our children let us sleep, which is oh. often not very late. Right. <laughs> but, you know, if they sleep till 730, we're probably going to take it. And so, but in a given day, I almost always will include exercise. And I have for almost a decade. It is pretty uncommon for me to skip unless I'm intentionally taking a break. Now, some days that might be a two-hour run, and some days that might be a 20-minute quick hit exercise. I don't know what it's going to look like, but having some movement is important. Consistently, but not every day, I will meditate. Sometimes I use headspace. Sometimes I just take that kind of meditative pause wherever I am, in the car or walking or whatever. And sometimes I will do it kind of without the prompts of, a, of an application or something and more traditional silent meditation. It depends on where I am and what mood I am, but some kind of pause, I'll, I'll call it. And then eating generally healthy. And I save a lot of, I mean, if there was a tray of brownies in between us right now, you probably would hear a lot more chewing than talking. Right. So I'm far from perfect on this, but predominantly eating healthy is really important because you just, I will just generally feel better as a result. Do you follow any kind of specific diet or are you counting macros or are yeah. you vegetarian? What, what's uh -huh. it? What's yeah, it? I've tried them all. I mean, yeah, I'll read about it on the internet and I'll say, or hear about it on a podcast and I think that's the next best thing. And I'm going to try that for 90 days. I did a year of intermittent fasting. I've tried vegan. I've done vegetarian. I've done keto. You know, I've tried to do largely protein. I've tried to do largely vegetables. I don't know. None of them have been the silver bullet for me. However, I learned something from almost all of them. Mm. And as a result, I try to eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of nuts, fruits, you know, legumes, etc. And then my proteins, I try to make them healthier, you know, as opposed to like a slab of bacon, maybe like a side of salmon. Yeah. Uh, however, <clears throat> you know, I can't, I've never walked by a bakery that I didn't stop and look into. So right. I, I have you know. my weaknesses. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. Chocolate chip cookies get me every time. Oh, please. And then the last thing I'll add to it is having a and I, I would like this to be all day, every day, but the reality is it isn't, but having a spiritual backdrop to what I'm doing. To me, that's not religious. It, it is not a matter of commune or you know life after death or belief set. It's more of a mindset of how I want to approach life. And so service is part of that. Kindness is part of it. Respect for other people is part of it. There's a lot you could put in the rubric of, of spirituality. But the whole point of it is trying to grow in that direction as opposed to atrophy away from it. Yeah. That's, that's, if I can just do that, that's cool. I don't need to define it. You know, I've heard interesting things from Zen Buddhism to Hinduism to Catholicism to Judaism. There's, you know, I think we both learned to be quick to learn when religious men are right. Right. Men and women. And so I heard this guy, Rob Bell, who is a, he's a Christian pastor in LA. And he said, he said, if there is a universal love and truth, then surely no belief set has a monopoly on it. Mm. How could how could you right? Mm. And so that kind of working around some nebulous spirituality is much easier for me than some ordination or, or a defined set of principles. Yeah. And so where, where do you get some of that stuff? Or you have a reading list? Are you an audible guy? Like, do you have any recommendations for you know someone's listening to you and you're like, you know what, I like what this guy's saying. Yeah. So I read less than I should, and I podcast a lot. Like, yeah. listen to I because I spend time in the car pre-COVID. Spent more time in the car, and so that's a great place for me to kind of explore topics. There is a podcast called the Rich Roll Podcast. Uh, a huge fan of that, and he frequently has spiritual guests on. It's a really 
deep and broad podcasts and episodes are really long. I commend it to every, everyone. But that, that's been a great source. And then I actually get it from conversation with people. So it's one of the topics I like to discuss with people. Yeah. And we discuss it at work. You know, I discuss it with my friends. My wife and I talk about it. And so there's learning there, too. Yeah, you said the magic word, and I'm going to kind of try to tie it back to another magic word. You said mindset, right? Because mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, you know, these, this exercise that you do and, and these different types of being open-minded and willing enough to try a new diet and to just do it for 90 days and see what happens. And if it's not the one or you're not really feeling it or you kind of you're doing a vegetarian thing and you're missing some meat, you kind of maybe you go to a pescatarian thing and see how that works out and just being willing to try those and see how it affects your body. Well, I guess the question is, did you find an effect on your body and, and did you find it that it also had an effect on you psychologically, right? And how that affect your mindset and who you showed up as mm -hmm. with your family and at work. And I kind of want to tie that to culture of the, the business, right? And how you drive that. But let's talk about you for a second. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. They have all had different effects. So I probably, so I have dabbled in running ultras and marathons and I probably ran my best ultra on a vegan diet. Mm. Great. Loved it. Felt super clean. Great energy. But that whole period, I, I didn't feel super strong in the gym. I didn't feel the strength the way I normally do. So for from a cardiovascular standpoint, I thought vegan was great. When I've been doing a lot of HIT, which is like really high caloric burn type of work, it's just volume, right? It's I got to eat enough. And so it's very hard to eat enough broccoli, not to pick on broccoli, to just kind of be able to, to do like a long and I used to like you know multi-series hit exercises it's harder with kids now and so that that was more around the volume thing I found mentally intermittent fasting really makes me feel clear mentally and so tell me so you know there's a lot of information about that are you waiting the 14 hours the 16 hours what's yours look like are you eating from like 12 to 6 during the day when you were doing it? Yeah. What was working for you? Yeah. So uh, for a year, I did about 20 hours fasting a day. Oh, wow. Yeah. 18 to 20 hours. That's a lot. It became so easy. So first week was hard. First month was yeah, a little bit of a grind. It became like second nature towards the end. And I, I didn't do it on the weekends because, you know, the family's around and we would do brunch and stuff. And so, but on the work days, it was very easy to do. Now, having had done that for a year... I could turn the IF on and off very easily. So I don't have to What's go IF? Uh, intermittent fasting. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, if you told me tomorrow don't eat until 7 p.m., that wouldn't be uncomfortable because I think there's some acclimation that my body is used to that. But I would always feel no afternoon crash, feel really sharp mentally, you know, based on my own capacity. So, but yeah, I, I liked that a lot for the mental stuff. So the answer to me is like, I don't know which one is best because they all seem to have merit. But what did it do for your mindset? You're saying you had more energy, right? Were you were you more joyful? Were you happier? Did you attack the day differently? Did you show up at work differently? I felt clear. Clear. Like mentally clear. And so there was not the ebb and flow during the day of like higher energy, lower energy, et cetera. I just would feel consistent throughout the day versus, you know, as you know, like, hey, we gotta go have a big lunch and then have a slice of cheesecake. You're gonna, yeah, gonna yeah. be slacking a little in the afternoon. And so you, that gets eliminated in that diet. Did you and so like so let's talk about how that that kind of sets you up because you're the managing director of this group right so mm -hmm. you drive the company culture in a large way right and people probably look up to you how do you think that helped you show up in the light in your in, as your best self as your best Alec to your coworkers and what does that do, do uh, great question so Halo has a 
really defined culture, despite being a distributed workforce. And in addition to that kind of touchy-feely stuff I said where everyone is supportive, uh, we have an internal culture we call a culture of blame, and this is meant tongue-in-cheek. And so anytime something comes up, we first decide who we're going to assign blame to, and again, in tongue-in-cheek sense, so that it kind of brings some levity to every situation. So let's say we're going to approach a client and you know pitch them on something before we do that we're going to say you know what today seth if this doesn't go right it's going to be your fault and so then everyone's like a little just lighter so you take it. care of it up front take right? care if it, it doesn't go well or after whatever yeah and, and then we can all let go of the kind of like artifice of you know who's shouldering this who's the success who that becomes a team thing once you've kind of brought this levity into it and i happen to work with some very funny people and so you can imagine this gets extended into some absurdity. But I really do think it's actually been, it it sounds silly, but it's been really important to have that levity and comedy in the workplace. Because we do work on very technical things, and it is consequential, you know, where we're doing work where people's privacy and and communications are or are not compromised as a result of what we do. So there isn't a lot of room for error. So if you come into that with anxiety, it's not actually going to be a performance environment. And so I think kind of having that levity, and we we do uh, a weekly call wherein before you can talk on that call you have to either bring a meme a tweet or a podcast or an article and discuss why it's interesting so the conversation while it will get serious kind of brings some personal flavor to it it allows us to get to know each other even though we're all spread and we see some pretty pretty absurd meme flow coming through the organization as a result. But it, it creates, again, some levity and some culture around things and allows us to, in a decentralized workforce, you have to get to know each other in that water cooler sense that you don't have an opportunity for because you live in different states or even you know, across the country from each other. Yeah, that decentralized workforce. How's that? How, how, what is that like to work in? Let, so and we've been remote or work from home or decentralized since day one. So I've become used to that. I like it a lot. So it comes with a lot of independence. It comes with a lot of responsibility. So no one's looking over your shoulder, making sure you're doing what you're doing, which is great. But if you figure out all your stuff and you're doing great and you need to go, I don't know, get a haircut at 2 p.m., there's no like, hey, boss, I'm going over to the you know, barbershop, which as you're looking at me, you know, would be absurd. Yeah. But as a general proposition, that comes with a lot more flexibility and a lot more responsibility. The downside to me, and this is where having culture is really important, is that you don't have the opportunity for the collaborative environment in a traditional sense. You're not all gathered around a water cooler or a whiteboard or you don't have the you know birthday cake or whatever is happening at the office. So you have to fabricate that or you have to create that somehow. You can do it by having occasional meetups and, and offsites or whatever, but the reality is not seeing people day to day in person detracts a little bit from the community sense of an organization. Mm-hmm. So you have to overcompensate by, you know, instead of doing a text message, do a call. Instead of doing a call, do a video call. You know, bring people into the conversation as opposed to having it be, you know, bilateral. And so we try to do that. I'm sure we don't do it perfectly, but I actually feel close to the people I work with and I feel like I know them well, even though some, there are some I've still never met because they were hired this year. And, and you've so, never met them in person. Never met them, yeah. Do you have mentors? Have you always had mentors? Talk to me about some of that stuff. Yeah, great question. I was thinking about that. So I have never gone to someone and said, would you be my mentor? My wife has been very good about that. She's had many mentors. I have had really good fortune in working for, back to my first job and even all the way through, working for some exceptional people. And they've all been exceptional in different ways. And so I've learned from the people, you know, at my level above me. And then I've also 
we've hired some, you know, young people out of college recently who are just like a decade ahead of where I was when I graduated from college in their cultivation of skill and the fact that they're reliable and, you know, earnest and hardworking. I mean, it's shocking to me. I'll probably work for them in six months, Yeah, you know? And so that's been amazing too, just to kind of see a generation kind of come up behind me that, that is actually as inspiring as the one in front of me. Yeah. Do you journal? Like, I mean, mm. do you do you keep a journal on a daily basis? I, or something I don't. Like yeah, that's actually a really good question. So in the that kind of meditative part of my daily practice, I save room for reflecting on kind of what's ailing me. Mm. Not as in, gosh, you know, this person is bothering me or anything like that. As in, like, what are my intrinsic defects and issues that are ailing me? And then just trying to... so. It, reflect on those and, and move away from them. That is all sounds like absurdly wishy-washy, but there is some truth to it. Th- yeah. These are, these are not methods that I came up with. Right. You know, they've been around forever. Yeah. You're following practices. Yeah, for from, sure. From, I don't have an original thing in my daily practice. Right. <laughs> Nothing. What's the process when you win and how you categorize that and how you quantify that so you can repeat it, but also when you lose so that you can do something different. Yeah, absolutely. So I think everyone does this and I try to call myself out on our you know, ad hoc calls and scheduled calls, whatever they are, and just kind of reflect back things that have gone right and wrong about whatever we're doing. And I do my role as much more client facing and kind of outward facing. And so some of that happens in a vacuum because it's just me interfacing with whoever we're working with. So I, I see it as incumbent on me to kind of carry that back and report it versus the internal stuff, project management or deliverables that everyone has visibility on. So it's a lot easier to hot wash and kind of, you know, review after the fact. So it's actually, there's a bunch of things that happened to me in the day that if I didn't come back and share, no one would know. Yeah. And, and the example I'll give is, because this just happened last week, you know, I was on site with a client, uh, super interesting project that I'm really engaged in. However, I clearly overpromised on some stuff, clearly. Just wanted to say yes to everything and, and kind of comprehensively deliver the moon. And, you know, in my conversations with the client, he was like, hey, listen, you don't have to say yes to everything. I know you don't do everything. And it was so simple and constructive and kind that it just cut right to the core of it. Yeah. And I was like, you're right, man. You're right. And that was just him and me, you know, sitting six feet apart from each other talking. But I brought that back into, you know, our next kind of group call because I think it's important for everyone to know certainly to be able to call me out on that if they see it again, but to kind of like receive that lesson collectively. What do you think that you as a leader doing something like what you, what you did, what impact do you think that's having on your, on your team and on on the culture? Yeah. I was just thinking as you were talking that you were going to ask that, and it is not necessary for me to prove my fallibility to my colleagues. They're way ahead of me on that. So it wasn't (laughs) about being like, Hey guys, just so you know, I'm perfect. I, I know you think I'm perfect, but here's a mistake I made. We're well beyond that. To me, it's more about just kind of like creating, and I remember this vividly from being earlier in my career, and I'm still earlier in my career, but earlier in my career, just having kind of that imposter syndrome feeling, mm-hmm. being like, and, and this was really true in commercial real estate. I was like, oh, I could never, you know, finance that multi-tenant, you know, commercial property because I'm too young. So they're not going to take me seriously because I'm 26. And so therefore, like, I have to wait until I'm 36 to be taken seriously, which is not true, right? We've seen countless examples of the opposite of that. However, this mindset of I'm a fraud or not enough at this time or, or even some idea in my head that at a certain point in the future, I will be enough for something 
which there's this guy, Naval Ravindakant, who's a very interesting kind of tech investor and philosopher. And he said that desire is making a deal with your future self to be unhappy until some point in time in the ah. future. Like and that. so if I desire to do a deal, but I think I can't do it until I'm 40, because that's the appropriate age for that size transaction, then I'm just saying to myself, you are not enough until that point. And so set aside that ambition. And so kind of to zero in on your question a little bit, I think it's important for, you know, to just kind of like share what's going on so that people see, you know, I think there's people who are wildly successful who will admit in private that they feel like frauds. And you're like, how could you, you are the paramount of your industry. How could you be a fraud? And it, so this is, has nothing to do with your outward accomplishments and everything to do with your in, intrinsic value. And so if I can improve that in myself and kind of share that with others, then you know, maybe that helps others, but it definitely helps me. Do you think it creates a feeling of belonging uh, within the company? Or get, I guess when you hear belonging versus fitting, neither one is bad, mm -hmm. right? And neither one is incorrect. But what do you think those two things mean? Yeah, good question. Yeah. So I think belonging is derived from authenticity. And fitting in, I can fake. Yeah. So, you know, and I did this in high school, right? I got to high school and everyone was wearing Birkenstocks and listening to fish. And so I was like, okay, I can fit in if I do that. And I did it and I did fit in and I made friends and it was great, right? But I don't, as soon as I graduated from college or from high school, I went to college and I, then everyone was listening to EDM and, you know, going to clubs in Boston. So I was like, oh, I'll just take on that identity. But it, and again, fit in, no problem, made friends, easy. But it wasn't a belonging because there wasn't any authenticity to it. Mm. So it took till later to kind of identify, you know, who I was in any meaningful way. And then, then you can find belonging because you know who you are. One of the things I like to ask people is, you know, what's, what's something that you're working on now that you want your future self to be, to be proud of? You know, to look back 10 years from now, a 10-year-older Alec, looks back at this Alec and says, I'm glad he made those good decisions. Mm. Right. And it doesn't one. even have to be as it relates to halo privacy or professionally, it can be something in your personal life. Like what, like yeah. you know, just what makes you tick as a leader and, and what are some of the things that as an individual you're working on, that's probably healthy for everyone. Right. I mean, I know you've got this, you've got a spiritual practice, you're trying different diets and working out, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So in some sense, I feel like everything I do is a vote on who I want my future self to be. Yeah. So that sheet of brownies, that's a vote on how I want to feel my workout tomorrow. For sure. I'll probably still do it, but, <laughs> but it, that is what it is. And so here is exactly where I am on this and far from completely evolved, but I allow a fair amount of being consumed by work and it bleeds into nights and weekends and personal life and more so than would be sustainable over the course of a lifetime. However, the trade-off in my mind is to eventually reach a point of greater independence and sovereignty. So sovereignty in so much as a financial independence to work for, with, whom, when I want, uh, sovereignty to choose the type of work that I do where I do it. So, you know, if it's at home or on vacation or neither or whatever, that kind of sovereignty and then sovereignty to enter and exit into things when I want to. So if you are an employee and I am an employee, I don't get to decide kind of, I can quit a job or, or start a job, but I, I'm not in control of, you know, writ large, what 
things I do and don't do as far as projects or endeavors or relationships or et cetera, because it's all kind of driven by the organization. But if you, it, I think there is a chance if you work hard enough, and I'm will, willing to try doing that, that you get to a point where you have the sovereignty to control all of those things. And to me, that is the trade-off that I'm attempting to make now. And I am well aware that it is not guaranteed. But to me, that juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. Are you familiar with growth mindset and fixed mindset? Mm-hmm. What do you What do you think about that? Yeah. So I actually kind of prefer a different one. Forgive me. So there's people, there's the kind of mindset of uh, surplus or plenty versus scarcity. And that, they're similar, right? There's some overlap there. But in the kind of mindset of scarcity, which there are successful avenues within that mindset because it's kind of more of a winner take all. And, and in certain things, certain things are a zero sum game. However, I choose to, in general, look at things as a mindset of surplus. And so me having something doesn't mean that you can't also. And therefore, that comes back to that kind of mindset of service, right? If, if it's just sales and I'm trying to rack up numbers, that's more of like a metric that to me sounds like scarcity. Because it's like, I've got to get the sale because if I don't, then the transaction is a failure and therefore my relationship is a transaction, which I think is not the way to look at it. But if it's surplus, then it's like, hey, if I can just help you, maybe we have a relationship later. Maybe that leads to business. Maybe it just leads to friendship, whatever. But either way, there is something gained there. And so I find it much more comforting to live in that mindset of surplus. And I've probably been taken advantage of for that mindset. And I am fine with that. I'd rather be taken advantage of a little and live that sort of principle that way than to kind of clutch onto things and be worried about what's mine. So you're more in a mindset of, of surplus, not scarcity. Yeah. And it probably aligns more with that growth mindset yeah, as well. Yeah. And, and I like that. I like the idea because I, I, I believe in a similar way, right? Like it's because someone else has something doesn't mean I'll never get it. Right. That's no. kind of ridiculous. It means but, it's attainable. Right. Yeah, exactly. But there's a very real thing sometimes that it seems like, oh, this other person has something and I'll never, you know, it goes back to the idea that you brought up that like at some point my in the future is when I'll be valuable enough to do something or have something or, you know, be something. And until then I've decided to not be happy about where I'm at or I've decided to insist that I can't do it. Inherent in that or implicit in that is the assumption that I always know what's best for me. Right. You know, which rarely has played out to be true. Right. (laughs) You know, like I said earlier, I wouldn't have asked for the job or career that I have now, yet I wouldn't trade it for anything now that I have it. Yeah. So thank God I didn't know any better at the time. Yeah. It's this idea of pretending to know what we're up to or, you know, and I've got the experience of playing a lot of if this, then that games with mm-hmm. with myself and professionally and personally like if this happens then that happens or when that happens then or when and if this happens then i can do this mm-hmm. and a lot of that i didn't realize and and i don't know you know if you've had to go through some of this too is, is just a lot of old behaviors a lot of old like beliefs things that i actually believed and because i happened to believe it didn't actually make it true and I didn't know that, right? I had to learn that. And I think that comes with time and age and maturity. How do you think some of that has affected your ability to grow in your career? So, yeah, this whole thing of beliefs are, they're important, right? Like it, they can be imbued with principles. Or, but an example that, that I heard somewhere else is if you take a football game and you look at it, half of the people that watched or attended that game thought it was a great event. The other half of the people thought it was terrible. Yet it was the same event. Right. And so this idea that there is a kind of 
common set of beliefs or principles that is true or not true, or you can only run your business according to these, or I'm only a decent person if I follow this path. Patently false and completely subjective. And so much more important to me to find some that I can try to materialize in my life that are decent and just go with those, right? I'm not going to be every form of, you know, I can't embody every form of morality. Some days I struggle with a single morality. <laughs> so, but I do try to struggle towards betterment in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you shared with us who you're, who you're following. You said, Rich Roll, who else are you following? What other kind of authors are you reading or, or things like, you know, what, give me an idea of some of that yeah. stuff just to know who you are. Yeah, so there's a tech CEO. Well, he's really more of a finance CEO now, but his name is, I'm going to butcher his last name, but it's Chamath Palihapitiya. He is a billionaire CEO of a company called Social Capital, and he is a very insightful commentator on a wide variety of things. So when he tweets, I listen or read. When he's on TV, I try to, to watch and see what he's going to say. He has a podcast called The All In Podcast that's very good. And he touches on social issues, moral issues, economic issues, political issues, etc. So I, I really like him. Rich Roll is kind of my first principal guy. Love everything that I've heard from him and learned a great deal from him. And then really my interests outside of that are in Bitcoin and privacy. And so I would commend anyone of the privacy and security or OSINT privacy and security podcast. That's not exactly what it is, but it's hosted by a guy named Mike Basil and he lives entirely off the grid. I live mostly off the grid and I've implemented some draconian privacy measures in my life. How do you do that? How, like uh, through brute force. Uh, so it would be a longer conversation, but essentially what I've done is intentionally abstracted my true life where I actually live and where I actually go and my actual information away from publicly available databases and collection points. So you could not go to a land registry and find the house that I live in based on my name. It's not there. So we use some corporate structures to buy our house and make sure that our names aren't involved in it. You could not go to the public utility where we live and say, where is Alec Harris's gas line account go to? Because there would be a corporate abstraction there with a sock puppet persona associated with it because it doesn't tie back to my name. So I'm not saying that you couldn't follow me home and figure out where I live. And much more likely, I would like to invite you to my home. It doesn't mean you can't come. It just means from a social media or collection standpoint, I'm a very hard target. I did that because I believe in that. I did that because my wife willingly came along and has graciously tolerated it. How do you convince? Yeah, that's probably the hardest part about all of that, right? Convincing another person that, hey, I want to do this, yeah. that they may not, because she doesn't work in privacy. No. So she doesn't know what you know. No. Uh, Most people probably don't know what Well, you, uh, like, as far as that. I mean, what, sure, you know. Sure. It's, it's a little bit of a niche skill set. She came along because she's a, a loyal and a, amazing person. And I told her it was important to me. And she was basically said, if it's important to you, it's important to me. And it has not been without a fair amount of friction, in particular for her, because I already knew how to do all this. I've done it for other people many, many times. This was just implementing skill sets that I already had. For her, I had to teach her how to do it, tell her why it was important, and then help her through it on a daily basis. However, we've been doing it for a while now, and she's really good. Yeah, she's really good. She knows it well. And she's texted me and surprised me a few times. She's like, oh, this is how I did this to make sure it protected our address. And I'm like, spot on. You're hired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Yeah, well, Alec, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. It's been great. It's been really great to just have you share some of those those things that you're doing, the, the practices. I, I happen to know you as an individual, and I think that gives me a, a leg up. 
But I hope that everyone listening can take away because th- those things that they they really help you show up in in my life, and I, and I know it's working for Halo Privacy. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks you for the uh, invite. And I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, you sometimes hear people say, "Oh, you know, when I got into Georgetown, it was easy to get in, and but now I benefit from the kind of prestige of that degree because it's a prestigious school now." I know that's what's going on with this podcast because I can be like, oh, I was an early, early guest on Phil's podcast, you know, when you're competing with Rogan. So, yeah, well, <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate it. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hope that I hope that's, that, awesome. that's true. That's awesome. man. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders on Instagram at DC Local Leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.